I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We're starting with the magician today. We are just going to read to page 412 in the reader's edition. There's kind of a natural shift there, which we'll get to. So Carol, can you start us off here this morning? All right. As we come to not the conclusion of, of Jung's long, long journey, if you think about all of the encounters in his descent and the integration that when we left him last time, his soul has shown him three things, has shown him the reality of war and the gift of magic and the way of the cross. And at the end last week of the way of the cross, what he has come to, you know, his whole questions about where am I and how do I move forward if I'm not the charioteer driving everything? And in the final paragraph of that section on page 395, he says, futurity grows out of me, grows. Remember, his soul has directed him to him to his garden. I do not create it, and yet I do, though not deliberately and willfully, but rather against will and intention. If I want to create the future, then I work against my future. And if I do not want to create it, once again, I do not take sufficient part in the creation of the future. And everything happens then according to unavoidable laws to which I fall victim. This is, you know, the intersection of consciousness with time, space, and matter. The ancients devised magic to compel fate. They needed it to determine outer fate. We needed to determine inner fate and to find the way that we are unable to conceive. For a long time, I considered what type of magic this would have to be, and in the end, I found nothing. Whoever cannot find it within himself should become an apprentice. And so I took myself off to a far country where a great magician lived, of whose reputation I had heard. So he's brought himself to this moment. The magician. After a long search, I found the small house in the country fronted by a large bed of tulips. This is where Philemon, the magician, lives with his wife, Bacchus. Philemon is one of those musicians who has not yet managed to banish old age, but who lives it with dignity, and his wife can only do the same. Their interests seem to have become narrow, even childish. They water their bed of tulips, and tell each other about the flowers that have newly appeared. And their days fade into a pale, wavering chiaroscuro, lit up by the past, only slightly frightened of the darkness of what is to come. 
Why is Philemon a magician? Does he conjure up immortality for himself, a life beyond? He was probably only a magician by profession, and he now appears to be a pensioned magician who has retired from service. His desirousness and creative drive have expired, and he now enjoys his well-earned rest out of sheer incapacity like every old man who can do nothing else than plant tulips and water his little garden. The magical rod lies in a cupboard together with the sixth and seventh book of Moses and the wisdom of Hermes Trismegistus. Philemon is old and has become somewhat feeble-minded. He still murmurs a few magical spells for the well-being of bewitched cattle in return from some petty cash or a gift for the kitchen, but it is uncertain if these spells are still correct and whether he understands their meaning. It is also clear that it hardly matters what he murmurs, as the cattle might also get well on their own. There goes old Philemon in the garden, bent, with a watering can and his shaking hand. Bossus stands at the kitchen window and looks at him calmly and impassively. She has already seen this image a thousand times, somewhat more infirm every time, feebler, seeing it a little less well every time since her eyesight gradually has become weaker. I was so touched by this passage, by this introduction to, first of all, you know, here we have the union of opposites in Philemon and Bacchus. Here we have activity and presence. That this is the intersection of healing. This is the intersection of time and, and space matter and these two people each have a job to do in relationship to how it will be held and how it moves in the world. And at the bottom of footnote 264, Jung, who has read Goethe's Faust and Faust's in some way manipulation and misuse of these two figures who, who when, when Jupiter and Mercury in, in mythology, Philemon and Bacchus are welcome Jupiter and Mercury, who, who don't tell them that they're gods. And of all of the places that these gods have sought a place to be, Philemon and Bacchus make space for them. And I, this reminded me of, you know, I'm a 60s music. It reminded me of uh, the Leon Russell song where he says, never, never treat a brother like a passing stranger. Only try and keep the love light burning only listen to my song and watch my eyes for it might be the Prince of Peace returning. And this has that flavor to it about, about the correct stance in relationship to the gods. And, and then Jung goes on to say at the bottom of the footnote, I have taken over Faust as my heritage, heritage and moreover as the advocate of Philemon and Bacchus who unlike Faust, the Superman, are the hosts of the gods in a ruthless and forsaken age. So this is, gives us the place where we are going to have presence and action intersecting with each other as a place of transformation, whether we call it healing, insight. You know, to me, this is really all this work has brought us to the seat of Jung's profound understanding about where change actually happens. And it doesn't happen where we think it happens. <laughs> in fact, it happens in the exact opposite place that we believe that it happens. And now he, in his conversation with Philemon, is going to be, begin to understand that. So shall you and I read? 
Sure. I, I want to just say just a couple things about this because I think things to track. There is a, a lot to chew on around how Bacchus shows up in this chapter and also how she's related to Salome or not. So there's, again, as we've been tracking in various ways through this entire book, there's the Elijah and Salome pair who begin this book with the masculine and feminine representation. We'll see them at the end. We'll get into that next week. They show up again. But here we have new manifestations of the Salome and Elijah images. Um, But now Philemon, who's the Elijah, sort of the evolution of that character, um, is very much up front and Bacchus is very much in the background. But there's a lot to kind of explore around that. And one just tiny piece here, you know, right where you ended the reading, Carol, that Bacchus is standing in the kitchen and she's observing her beloved husband out the window. And, and in the original story, the two of them are just deep partners, or that's what it seems. They have a deep partnered relationship. They want, they request to, to die at exactly the same moment from the gods and that they become trees just directly side by side for eternity, it seems, right? And so their partnership lives on in this very deep loving equality, the masculine and feminine paired in equality in that way. And so here Bacchus is standing in the kitchen observing Philemon. Philemon is tending his little garden, which is exactly what Jung had had instructed, you know, tend your garden well, tend your little garden well. So here Philemon is doing just that. He's tending his little garden well, and she's observing him lovingly. And she doesn't in this in this chapter, leave that spot. There is no further way that she engages. But her eyesight is gradually becoming weaker. For me, and we'll see this later at the end of the chapter, what happens with Salome's eyesight. We remember she was blind early at the beginning of the Red Book. Here, Bacchus's eyesight is failing. So there's just perhaps, maybe not, but perhaps little allusions to different images. And this question of sort of how the feminine counterpart of Philemon shows up or doesn't show up, I think is, to me, it's sort of still there to be chewed on. The more I have reflected on this particular part of the magician, the more I think about a yin-yang pair, mm-hmm. you know, that, that because of, of Jung, his time and the spirit of the times, they're framed as masculine and feminine as Elijah and Salome. And this is where we're going is to Elijah and Salome. But I also think of it as his rising understanding of yin, of yin-yang pair. You know, the simplest definition that I work with when I talk with astrology clients about where they are in, in these cycles of cultivation is that yang is energy without form and yin is form without energy. My Chinese teacher says, yang without yin is a ghost, yin without yang is a corpse. Mm-hmm. And so this idea, and I think really expressed in these two people, is that we're in this constant, constant round of arising, coming into form, an energized form that then distributes itself and goes back to energy. And that, that, it's sort of how I'm thinking about it right now. But, um, but it's interesting how it's going to go to Elijah and Salome at the end. Yeah. In a worm. Yeah. <laughs> So there's just, there's one line just to add to that um, on 410. I mean, it's a tiny line. Jung just says, Bacchus is only your other half. He says that to 
to Philemon. But I think that phrase is important to me because he's really explicitly expressing that Bacchus is Philemon's other half and that there's this quality of by engaging with Philemon as a figure, he is simultaneously engaging with Bacchus in a way. But again, I've kind of gone over this in various ways. At times, I felt frustrated that after this whole journey incorporating the feminine, she stays in the kitchen looking out the window. But there is this quality of her holding space and that in engaging with Philemon, he really deeply understands that he is also engaging with Philemon's feminine soul and co-partner and co-creator. So I'm just kind of inviting folks to just witness your own relationship to these images as they arise in this chapter, because it will get much more complicated. And I think it's an important thing just to start kind of checking in on what is your own read on, on the way that this shows up or doesn't show up. Okay, so let's dive back into Philemon and magic, Carol. You want to start at the top of 398 and I'll be Okay, sure. I stand at the garden gate. They have not noticed the stranger. Philemon, old magician, how are you? I call out to him. He does not hear me, seeming to be stone deaf. I follow him and take his arm. He turns and greets me awkwardly and trembling. He has a white beard and thin white hair and a wrinkled face, and there appears to be something about his face. His eyes are gray and old, and something in them is strange. One would like to say alive. I am well, stranger, but what are you doing here? People tell me that you understand the black art. I am interested in that. Will you tell me about it? What should I tell you about? There's nothing to tell. Don't be ill-natured, old man. I want to learn. Mm, You are certainly more learned than I. What could I teach you? Do not be mean. I certainly don't intend to become your competitor. I'm just curious to know what you are up to and what magic you are performing. What do you want? In the past, I have helped people here and there who have been sick and disadvantaged. What exactly did you do? Well, I did it quite simply with sympathy. Old man, that word sounds comical and ambiguous. How so? It could mean that you helped people either by expressing compassion or by superstitious, sympathetic means. Well, surely it would have been both. And that's all there was to your magic? There was more. What was it? Tell me. That is none of your business. You are impertinent and meddlesome. Please, don't take my curiosity badly. Recently, I heard something about magic that awakened my interest in this bygone practice. And then I came to you because I heard that you understand the black art. If magic were still taught today at university, I would have studied it there. But the last college of magic was closed long ago. Today, no professor knows anything anymore about magic. So, do not be sensitive and miserly, but tell me a bit about your art. Surely, you don't want to take your secrets to the grave with you, do you? Well, all you'll do is laugh anyway, so why should I tell you anything? It would be better if everything were buried with me. It can always be rediscovered later. It will never be lost to humanity, since magic is reborn with each and every one of us. And let's just end there. I think that's a good place to pause here. 
So uh, part of what I love about this section is we see Jung's ego self, right? Having a dialogue with his soul self. And, and he's, I mean, he's correctable, right? Like all through the book, you see this kind of younger impertinent self. He's sometimes racist. He's sometimes chauvinistic and he gets corrected by his inner self in these beautiful ways. So here this wiser magician is, is, playing with him and teasing him. And this is all flowing out of Jung's own being. So, um, but this question of, of where to study magic and, and this sweet thing, I think so many of us have had this experience if universities taught the goods, you know, if professors really had connections to their own souls, or if, if, if professors were Yoda or, or Obi-Wan Kenobi, I would have been there long ago, but where do I go to learn magic, right? Where is Hogwarts? Where does Harry Potter learn? And so this is Jung really diving into his own exploration to search, search for these things. You know, I, I think about a part of my thinking, especially when with this particular phrase, when he says, I did it quite simply with sympathy. Mm-hmm. I, as I said to you this morning, I'm fresh out of a class on China, from Chinese medicine on the six confirmations, which is um, an, an understanding of the body as an intersection, as a material place in which time intersects. And so that metabolic functions, they can be thought of as organs and organ systems, but they're nature's processes. They happen to reside and condense themselves in the body, but they don't exist. They exist apart from the body. That's why I love this line where he says, it'll be buried with me, but it can be rediscovered. It's there. The magic is there. This idea that there is this, what what the French philosopher Jean Gebser calls the ever-present origin. Mm-hmm. And I think what Jung is coming to, and Philemon is the expressor of that, is that being present with origin, being present in the moment, not do nothing, not absent yourself from the intersection, but that only through bringing yourself to complete presence, sympathy, to resonate with what is, rather than to steer the chariot or to bring ideas that make separation that make a you and an other or a self and a god that's outside you that this is the these this magician that jung is learning from is bringing him what what gebser calls a causal intention which is presence and and that through presence you invoke what he calls plenipotentiality mm-hmm. that everything is there but as long as you're only driving from your own perspective separated to a particular kind of effect you won't have the possibility of receiving what else might be possible mm-hmm. so i spent yesterday in a school that was magic it's a profound understanding through the shan hang lun which is a chinese book of of a diagnosis and treatment of how you understand how the world works. That that's what magic is, is understanding that. It's not trying to manipulate it or steer or make things come out. It's being with. So I loved, I loved that, you know. And the, the other thing that I like about this, or that warmed me, is this idea of 
that you come to it with a certain regard, with a certain positive regard. And Philemon says to him, don't be a brat. Just be here. Have some respect. Mm-hmm. And then it, said, it sends Jung into all of these questions about who Philemon is and what his nature is. And you get that whole series of questions. What mystery are you intimating to me? Which mask are you hiding in? What's the wisdom of the serpents? It leads to, and, and as Jung begins to really take this on, what, it, oh, is that what this means? Then he has a lot of questions about the embodied form of magic that's coming towards him in the person of Philemon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything you just spoke to Carol also just makes me think of where Jung was in his own journey and, and studies that, you know, this is before he encountered or met uh, Richard Wilhelm and the I Ching and the secret of the golden flower. But mm-hmm. it is leading up just as you expressed to Jung's understanding of, of Taoism, right. And, and ancient Chinese practices and ancient yogic practices and Hindu practices um, Tibetan practices, and that his psychology as an outgrowth of a Western man, of a man raised in deeply in Christian culture, that he was from his own being coming to the, the journey of uh, Taoism and, and the union of the opposites. And, and I think that's part of what Philemon is really deeply expressing here too, is don't worry if I die with my secrets. You know, mm-hmm. this can be tapped into at any time by anyone, wherever they may be. There is this quality, again, of that, you know, rhizome layer under the soil or the collective unconscious that wherever you may be, there is something of this union of the opposites and this journey that, that is found in every culture everywhere. That's and a he, great word, rhizome. That's a great word, Satya. I mean, it, it's really a, it's really a Chinese medicine word, rhizomic. You know, of how something takes its root. Where does something take its root as it comes into manifestation in the material world? Mm-hmm. You know, but where, where, what is it? The source in which it roots itself. So that's right. a, that's a, a perfect word for this. Well, I'm glad you like it because a woman with a PhD in, in mushroom studies, I don't, I'm going to screw up the proper name, but corrected me at one point that in fact, what we're speaking to is the kind of mycelium, the, the endless network underneath the soil, right? But the rhizome, there's some relationship to it all, this rooting down <laughs> underground, right? Underground into the unconscious and that we're all some outgrowths of that. What he goes on to say, Jung says, oh, this is serious. You know, this isn't made up and it's not black, it's something else. How do you learn it? And then he he goes on to talk about, this is on footnote 270 and 271 on pages um, 403 and 404. He talks about unlearning, about the problems of, of reason. He says, where reason abides, one needs no magic. Mm-hmm. Hence, our time is no longer in need of magic. We need to know it's opposite, you know, that, that, he, that not only is it personal, but it's collective. There's a collective belief about how the world is that makes it impossible to get at essence because we're so addicted and attached and our maladaptation to source is to be in control and to think about everything. Mm-hmm. And then he says, you have to be open to chaos to know how essence is derived and then at the top of 405, he says, magic is a way of living. 
If one has done one's best to steer the chariot and one then notices a greater other is actually steering it, then a magical operation is taking place. Right. Which, which is an allusion to the Bhagavad Gita, right? Arjuna and Krishna. And, and I think to the entire hero's journey and all of Jung's understanding of what we now refer to as the ego self axis, which for me is one of the most important concepts in Jung's psychology, because it feels like a frame for the entire journey of individuation that, that is just important to kind of deeply digest that the ego can't just get something because it wants it, you know, and again, you think of Star Wars or Harry Potter, or any more of the, the modern versions of this, a young Jedi can't just get the force, right? There is nothing to get. They can't just suddenly be in relationship to the force because they want to. This isn't a willpower thing, but they also can't lay back without any action or engagement or practice. You know, Karate Kid, it's another version of this, practices endlessly in the most mundane, painful, boring ways, wiping on and wiping off the wax, painting the fence. So there's deep practice involved for the ego to both sort of be relativized in relation to the to the deep psyche, which I think, Carol, you were referring to as that Bacchus element in the background earlier, yes. right? So mm-hmm. that there is tremendous training for the ego, but also tremendous subordination in a beautiful way to to the larger force whatever that may be to magic it's how you make the connection the connection it's the rise on your the practice is the connection to the source right you can't you 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 can't will it but you can grow it right and um and that whole idea of of bowing you know, of surrendering yourself and of mm-hmm. bowing low. You know, the, the oracle bone for the kidney is a figure that is bowed really low. You know, we saw that image earlier in the red book mm-hmm. of a figure on, that, on the rug in which he's bowed low. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the, the kidneys are now exposed to the oceanic, to the, to the divine, mm-hmm. and that it's the practice of bringing yourself low that, make something else possible to enter. Right. It's a practice and and a constant interplay in my mind between order and chaos. I love footnote 271, which is on page 404, but this this is from another draft, right? So there were many drafts of the Red Book that ultimately turned into this particular version that we all have in front of us, right? So Jung had had compiled various versions of this, and this is what we, we now read in the published version. But in footnote 271, this line, magical practice falls into two parts. First, developing an understanding of chaos, and second, translating the essence into what can be understood. So mm-hmm. it's just this interplay between kind of, you know, the logos and eros, order and chaos um, and and how they are in relationship right throughout all of this and how that relationship is the connection to the force or to the magic it's not something that can be acquired or known as an acquisition either well and you know that leads the one of the things that came up for me really strongly it, uh, after he talks about magic as a way of living on 405 he says thus a certain solitude and isolation are inescapable conditions of life for the well-being of oneself and of the other. Otherwise, one cannot sufficiently be oneself. 
a certain slowness of life, Mm -hmm. which is like a standstill, will be unavoidable. Mm -hmm. The uncertainty of such a life will most probably be its greatest burden, but still I must unite the two conflicting powers of my soul and keep them together in a true marriage until the end of my life, since the magician is called Philemon and his wife Bacchus. Mm -hmm. I hold together what Christ has kept apart in himself and through his example in others, since the more the one half of my being strives toward the good, the more the other half journeys to hell. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, it leads us to the conversation about the age of Pisces and the age of Aquarius. He goes on to talk about that, about that he knows he himself is in this evolutionary state. Mm-hmm. But it reminded me of the the thinker, David Abram, who in his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, has, uh, it, it, Abram is a very interesting um, thinker-doer. He practiced magic when he was in his graduate program. He, he put himself through college doing nightclub magic. And, and in the end, he got a fellowship to go study magic in Southeast India, in, in Bali and in Indonesia and introduced himself to shamans and healers and witch doctors. And he said um, that there were two things that he discovered about them, that they didn't live in the middle of everything and that they allowed outrageous stories to be told about themselves and that he didn't understand that. Like, why would that be the case? And then he goes on to say, um, this is on page seven in, in his introduction. I came to discern the traditional or tribal shaman acts as an intermediary between the human community and the larger ecological field. This is in a chapter titled, The Ecology of Magic. Ensuring there is an appropriate flow of nourishment, not just from the landscape to the human inhabitants, but from the human community back to the local earth and by constant ritual, trance, ecstasy, and journey ensures that the relation between human society and the larger society of beings is balanced and reciprocal Mm -hmm. and that the village never takes more from the living land than it returns to it, not just materially, but with prayers, propitiations, and praise. And it is only as a result of this continual engagement with the animate powers that dwell beyond the human community that the traditional magician is able to alleviate many individual illnesses that arise within that community. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what Jung is coming to. Uh, and, and under that's why he says, I, the uncertainty of such a life will most certainly be its greatest burden. To where do you have to live? How do you have to live to be able to be completely present to the moment, a causal intention, and operate there. Mm-hmm. And what, what kind of circumstance do you have to create for yourself in which you are able to do that? And this is something he's trying to learn from Philemon and Bacchus. It also brings up Jung's reminder that Philemon is part pagan and, and how that brings us back over and over to, to Jung's insistence that we live our animal. That, that all Westerners in particular, you know, Christians in particular, but he's saying we all must live our animal. We must live our earthly nature self. And that that is part of where the magic is, you know, and to completely disconnect ourselves from nature and the pagan and the animal 
is in fact the opposite direction in which we should be going. Something you said earlier, Carol, as well, just brought me to this line on 410. I'm going to read a couple lines here because I just think they're so relevant to all of this. this. This journey of individuation, the necessity that we each do this work. He says, Christ spoiled men since he taught them that they can be saved only by one, namely him, the son of God. And ever since men have been demanding the greater things from others, especially their salvation. And if a sheep gets lost somewhere, it accuses the shepherd. So really this reminder, it is up to us to kill the king, so to speak. It is up to us to find our way back to the magic and the source. It is up to each of us. It is not up to us to blame the leaders, the presidents, the priests, the gods, whomever, which you know doesn't mean there's some fault can't be found there from time to time. Um, but he's bringing us back to where the work really is, not, not to leave it to the prophets, right? Let's let's go to the age of Aquarius for a bit because I think it comes up a lot. We had Carol recently, just a few days ago, at a separate salon exploring the age of Aquarius and the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And Jung here on page 405 and 406 really explores that with some depth. And he's speaking to the age of Pisces, which he really associates with the Christian era, the image being the fish And he says somewhere around the year 2000 to the year 2200. But, you know, these are indefinite periods and Jung speaks to this in different ways throughout his writing, but we are there in some relationship. And he speaks about it in relationship to the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, which we are coming up on at the end of December that Saturn and Jupiter will be conjunct in Aquarius. So there's something happening that sort of tickles around the edges of possibly the dawning of the age of Aquarius and where are we at with that. So at the bottom of 405, he says, the fish indicated the moment when what was united split according to the eternal laws of contrasts into an underworld and upper world. If the power of growth begins to cease, then the united falls into its opposites. Christ sent what is beneath to hell, since it strives towards the good. That had to be. But the separated cannot remain separated forever. It will be united again, and the month of the fish will soon be over. The age of Pisces will soon be over. We suspect and understand that growth needs both, and hence we keep good and evil close together, because we know that too far into the good means the same as too far into evil. We keep them both together. And this is why, just again, referring back and thinking back to Bacchus being in the kitchen, there is this understanding in this whole chapter that Philemon and Bacchus are together. They die together. They, they are side by side in, in the trees in the forest after death together, that Jung is working on how to have the chaos and the order constantly in relationship in the conjunctio in his own being. So he sees this as the age of Aquarius and what's coming. Yeah. Well, the great ages, there's a lot of difference in the astrological community about when the great ages are. But this, this I, I took from um, the remarkable Jungian astrologer, Alice Howell. If we think of the zodiac as where time and space intersect, how time embodies itself. What, how do we understand the metabolism 
of a day, the metabolism of a month, metabolism of a year, the metabolism of a decade. And not in some rigid way, but in some state of constant arising, becoming, dying, and regenerating. So the language of the zodiac, the zodiac signs are associated with yin yang. You know, all of this, to me, all the symbolism of the zodiac is very much about in deep, deep winter, Capricorn, it's the most yin time of year because it's the darkest time of year and all the light, the seeds are inside the dark. And then the light grows and it grows and you get to Aries where it's half light, half dark and everything emerges. And then it comes up to the cancer where everything is held tenderly so it can reach its full maturation before it's birthed into form and then form turns into chi again. It's like eating. You know, we sleep, we wake up, we're hungry, we eat, we digest it. Our body goes, this will be useful, this won't. We store it and we rest and it starts again. So this is the cosmic body. And in that cosmic body, the what is called the precession of the equinoxes, here is earth and here's the axis of earth. And not to put too fine a point on it, it wobbles. <laughs> we wobble. And as we wobble, it takes 26,000 years to wobble from one place in relationship to how we measure our relationship to space and time, which is the zodiac. And we break down the wobble in 2,000 years approximately each to the 12 signs. And Jung understood this. He calls them the platonic months. He's talking about our evolution, our formal evolution in relation of, as evolving form in relationship to magic, to energy of what's constantly there, of what's always there coming into form. So in terms of the great ages, this, you, can, you can start in a way to measure it anyway, but the age of cancer from 8,000 to 6,500 BCE was, it was the great Ouroboric mother. It's, it's the powerful, dark mother that gives birth to everything. At the end of that period of time, you begin, this is where you, you get powerful female images in caves and small figurines that begin to show up with birds. And the age of Gemini, 6500 BCE to 3750 BCE, now consciousness, and, and this is one of the first places where there's a fracturing and there begins to be twinness. And that leads to coming into form, which is the age of Taurus, 4000 to 1800 BCE. Howell calls it property, but it's embodiment that things have a body and life is good and it's about stuff. So we all have this evolution in us. Each one of us individually has also gone through these incarnative states of becoming. And property and materiality lead to strength and position. And so the age of Aries, 1800 BCE to 7 BCE, it's where you get the great heroes. It's where you get Jason, it's where you get, and we're coming to Christ, but we're, you know, it's where you get Jupiter and Saturn and where you get the great fathers and the great, and, and it's also where you get Athena. It's also where you get Aphrodite. It's where you get these powerful, bigger than life 
figures and, and that um, there are issues of justice and you can be judged for your behavior. And then what Jung is talking about, the age of Pisces, the two fish that are tied together. I love the name of the star that ties their tail together. It's called Al-Rasha, which means the sacred knot. And you will all, of course, be interested to know, I won't get into the long machinery of astrology, that Mars in its current state is sitting right on the sacred knot. So you can feel that in, in our collective experience. So the age of Pisces, faith and reason, we get this division that after these long eras where something is developing personally and in the collective, and Jung himself is so... Uh, exquisitely articulating this balancing that if things fracture and something's good and something's evil and that that our will is directed towards only making what is good and putting away what is evil we exacerbate the split and that where we're headed to the age of Aquarius which we are in and which we're headed towards is where the split the I, I becomes we, that the possibility of these years is that it's, it's not heroes, it's villages, mm -hmm. you know, that we come back to a memory about how to not going back in some Luddite way to, you know, being huddled around the fire, but how will we, how will we do this next? How will we not, how will I and my struggle to bring myself back together but how will we all reimagine and find a new way to be present together without collectively asserting our wills about what we think ought to happen and bending ourselves towards that, absent some, like Bacchus, standing at the window holding things, the space and the practice. And so the ideal of Aquarius is those two things simultaneously, holding the space and practicing the, rhizoma the rhizomatic connection between the two. Right, in each individual, right? Yes. So yes. when you say we, I think part of what you're expressing in that is the we of ideally individuated people. Yes. Not, yeah. not mass mobs and also not Christian servants, right? People who are trying to do good um, yeah. in explicit way, but, but individuated eyes. People who yeah. are in connection, in relationship to their own force, their own magic, and have egos. And I think this is just a critical point. And, and for me, it shows up in discussions of um, AA or any psychological growth. Ego, there has to be an ego to contain the magic that is strong enough and healed enough and healed from trauma and all that. So, so in this age of Aquarius dawning, there's healing and listening and trusting and being with ourselves in a very deep way. And then also in community in profound ways. Well, it's where the, it's actually where community comes from. Uh -huh. and that's what Jung is saying. You tend your garden, something else will happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and we go, oh, it couldn't be that easy. Well, and I love what he, when he just looks at Philemon and Bacchus and, and it's this, you know, you can feel this kind of younger man observing these two, these two old people and all they do is they just water their plants and she's in the kitchen and, but there's something so, especially now, so tender and comforting that that is what they have come to. They're not proselytizing. They're not trying to save people. They're there. And when the gods arrive, they are the most ready to accept them 
and welcome the gods, but they're not running around the world trying to do much, right? They're just tending their garden. Thank you for your dive into the age of Aquarius. It's so nutritious these days. Well, I'm going to keep diving. There's plenty more there. But again, my hat and my uh, thanks to Jung for, for the work that he did. And I'm reading Ion, you know, which is his understanding of the ages. Right. You know, and of the age he's in and the age that we're, that we are in. So Mm -hmm. I commend it to people. It's not an easy read. No, very little of, of Jung's primary works, you know, his writing are easy reads. All right, loves, all of you, we welcome your commentary, questions, thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you? Thank hi. you. Thanks so for being this, here. Hi, Carol, thank you. Um, so all this magic talk has made me think of the tarot. And when you lay out the major arcana in the three lines of a grid, seven cards in each line, the first card of the first line is um, the magician. magician. And so um, this line is the I am line, the foundation, the ego. The last card of that line is the chariot. And then mm -hmm. you leave the chariot, go behind, your ego behind, you go to the second line, which asks the question, who am I? It's the line of surrender. It's where the hanged one is, which Carol talked about when she talked about Neptune and Odin and the tree of knowledge. Then you move into the third line where we are right now. And that um, pretty much says there is no I. And that is the line of individuation. So it starts with the devil, which is ruled by Capricorn. It goes to the tower, which is ruled by Mars. And this is the collapse of structure. Then, of course, the water bearer. Here we have the star, age of Aquarius. Mm. Then the moon, which is ruled by Pisces. Not actually by the moon, by Pisces. Mm -hmm. The sun, which is the light, which... Carol talks about all the time. Then judge, judgment, which is ruled by Pluto. And this is the awakening, the collective awakening. And then finally, the world, which is this rebirth to the next to start line. So it just, you know, it's perfect. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. And the, I will just say the fool is really the first card, but mm. you don't include it in the grid because this is you the fool accompanies you in the journey as you go through the it's three. the hero right the journey right. so yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. beautiful yeah. i you know it's always so nourishing just to know how all the different traditions again it's it makes me think of philemon saying it's okay if i die because this is just it just reemerges so many of these traditions are speaking to this hero's journey this alchemical path this this individuation right so i love love seeing that thank you liz yeah and i'll just say one other thing is 2020 uh, adds up to four and that's the year of the emperor which is all about mm -hmm. leadership and rethinking leadership and you know breaking up with the patriarchy and that so that's you know speaks to this year so much that is interesting. I, there's a, there are, of course, a lot of articles in the astrological world about the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in the sequence every 20 years, every 80 years, every 200 years, every 800 years. And in those conversations, there are, there are breaks in the sequences. And in those breaks, where anomalies appear in the sequence, 
have in this country anyway resulted in the assassination of a president. And there were there it's called Tecumseh's curse. And um, because of the because of the Indian who cursed the president who was assassinated, the, there are there's some very interesting thinking now, very much to what you're talking about, Liz, which is it isn't the person that's going to be assassinated; it's the role itself. That the that where we are in the anomaly of the ages is that we just can't think about it that way anymore, and in the oddest way, everything that has happened in the last four years has brought us to that conclusion. Thank you both. Hi, Nan. Hi, Satya. Um, this is a very simple thought, and I, I loved that um, dive into the tarot. Thank you, Liz, for that. Um, but to go back to the image of um, Bacchus being at the window looking out um, at Philemon watering the garden, which is just a lovely dual image. And I think that in part, her part is to take what comes out of the garden and use it, manipulate it, cook it, so that it nourishes both of them. That's beautiful. It, I love yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. The nutrients that come from the garden, the digestion. And I was thinking, just as you're speaking, Lawrence Vanderpost, who we have mentioned previously, in his biography, Jung and the story of, of our time or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he mentions in there, there's a, there's an interesting couple pages where he, he had a real knowledge, at least of part of the red book. You know, this is way, way, way before publication, right? When the red book was sitting in Jung's study and there were some drafts of it around and people had spoken about it and, and Jung had spoken with patients about it, but there's some discussion of Salome and Bacchus and Philemon in that. Uh, biography, and he really is frustrated with the fact that in the end, there that Bacchus barely is present, and and it's just something. I mean, again, I'm something I've really chewed on, um, and I and I also sort of shared that frustration at one point because it feels like Jung takes this whole journey, and then at the end, it's just him and Philemon, and really most of his psychology, people know Philemon very well. Very few people know Salome, you know, so that's, again, sort of part of my own work in this. But but I'm sort of coming around a little bit. And I think, Nan, the way you put that image about Bacchus being in the kitchen just feels, you know, it's like she's doing something with all that material. So mm -hmm. I'm holding that. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. So just something that stuck out to me and I hadn't heard, um, maybe it's well known, but when you said... Um, Carl Jung talking about returning to the animal or, or the wild or yeah. what, what, however Carol phrased it. Um, and immediately I was like, well, the root prefix of animal is anima. Mm. And so I was wondering, is animal and anima, like, are they synonymous? And is mm -hmm. that something that has been, is, is well known? Or do you think that that is kind of exactly what he's saying is the wild returning to the anima? Or I was wondering if there's something around that. It's a brilliant question. I love it. I think we could go on for another hundred salons on that very question. Carol, what are your thoughts? Uh, anima is breath. And it's come to mean other things in, in the Jungian work. But I remember wondering when humans started thinking we weren't animals. And, I, and it took me to Aristotle's De Anima. And you can see in the evolution of what they call the axial religious ages, now all of a sudden humans have dominion over the earth and they have dominion over the animals. And now 
yes, they breathe. Yes, they move. But that's all we share with them. That what has happened to us is we forgot it's us. Mm -hmm. And so for Jung to bring back to and just the simplest thing, which is, you know, the thing that, that all of our yoga teachers tell us, don't, don't forget to breathe, you know. And, and the other thought that I have about it, about breath, is that's the magic, is what's being breathed into the world. Not that we're the ones who are doing the breathing, but we are being breathed. Mm-hmm. And that insofar as we are being breathed, we're a part of a breath of everything that's breathing, and that includes our animal natures. And my, my sense is that's part of what Jung is trying to get at when he talks about it. Mm-hmm. I just watched David Attenborough's new documentary. Oh. If anybody's seen that yet, and it's quite dismal. <laughs> One of the data points is that 1% of the animal population is actually wild, left that is wild. The rest is in is for um, farming. It's not just the animal, but it's the wild animal that is being, is, is disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. I mean, this is a, it's definitely a tender spot for me uh, to even speak to because I think so many of us hold grief around this stuff. And I definitely just what you express brings up a lot of grief for me, but I don't, you know, I think Jung isn't really given enough credit, I think, for how somatic his psychology is at root and always has been. And part of that is because a lot of the people, unfortunately, who have really brought his work forward are not embodied. And I mean, that's a struggle for all of us, but his work gets really abstracted and is, and is made very intellectual when, in fact, as we see in the Red Book, it's everything he was sort of trying to speak against. And that the animal and the feminine, as you say, um, I think he always saw those as as the same. I mean, in many respects, he speaks about the anima, the ensouled self, and and is speaking about the body simultaneously. And that's not just in the Red Book. It shows up in, in a lot of his other writing. Again, he's not really credited with somatic psychology, but he understood, I think, the unconscious as being in the soma, you know, in ourselves in very deep ways that he understood the the lineage, the heritage, culture, the way that lives in our bodies. And so the soul is ensouled in animal form. And but and I love the way you put a fine point on that, Kelly. Thank you. Okay, we have lots of hands up, beautiful people. Um, hi, Steve. Hi there. Well, this is kind of a related question because just Kelly was asking about the, the etymology of, of animus. And, and I was like really intrigued by um, in the footnote in 264, they made the reference to Philemon deriving from Philema, meaning kiss. Mm. And then I would sort of chase this down if Bacchus also had some other meaning. One of the things I found was there, there was somebody who was saying, saying that Philemon basically could be understood as Mr. Kindness, but I couldn't find any meaning for for what Bacchus might have derived uh-huh. from. So that, that's just what I was wondering. Is like, it, if he's the kiss, then what is she? I had some notes on that in my, you know, marginal notes um, in my red book from past studies. I, I can't speak to that personally much, but that, you know, there's all this discussion, which we didn't get into today in this chapter around Philemon being the lover and love, right? Mm-hmm. And that Bacchus, I think there's also an allusion to that, but I don't, I don't remember, you know, what my notes mean in that respect. But there is this quality of love and Eros being fundamentally embodied in this Philemon figure. And I think what you brought up, you know, it's a piece we really should have highlighted. It's so important. And Salome, again, this kind of feminine counterpoint is peace, 
right? Mm-hmm. Shalom, peace. That's her, that's her uh, origin, the, the name. So, so this quality of Eros, love and peace is certainly core to all of these. Thanks for drawing us there. Thank you. Um, hi, Linda. Hi. I was just thinking about all of this and the, um, when you were talking about um, Philemon being so much more prominent than Bacchus and thinking about Jung still being a product of his times and, and still, you know, the, the masculine being so much more prominent and that kind of movement towards the feminine. Um, and then just kind of thinking about um, where we are today and, and how you know, the masculine is so action oriented and we see that going on in the streets and everything, but it's, it's frustrated because, you know, it's kind of like action just produces more action with no result. And like that turning towards the feminine and the nurturing and the nutrient and kind of the more passive, like how the feminine has gradually and persistently, um, still rising and coming into prominence and and how the in the reworking of what's going on there is a return to tending one's own garden and really in the midst of the chaos how does one find oneself and not lose oneself and it is about tending one's own garden and becoming more rooted and grounded and and growing from there and so it's just an interesting image to just see how the the image at the end of the red book just becomes more and more relevant to um, what seems to be actually taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you what it makes me think of immediately is this class I'm in on the six confirmations, and one of the confirmations is called Ajuyin, and it's wind wood, and it's exactly it's breath and growth. It, it's it's associated with the liver as a as a as a seat in your body and and the you know the movement of blood, and it's both what gets disturbed chaotically and it's also where the medicine is, to breathe and to grow your garden. So I th- I thank you for that. In terms of what I'm learning now about these syst- systems, which are not systems, they're Gebser calls them gestures, or not it's not even like chi or energy. It's it's how things move, how it's movement in the world. And wind wood is a name for a particular kind of movement. And it's associated with a certain concretization, both in the personal body and the collective body. And so it's both what's been disturbed and it's the medicine. And it, our time is so much like Jung's time. Mm. Yeah. Hi, Michelle. Hi. So many threads uh you know off of this discussion very rich it made me think of alchemists you know as very potent magicians because in their quest for the higher self the philosopher's stone the potent medicine as it were they're operating in this field of matter in the duality of chaos and energy the coagulating the forming you know substance and the dissolving so again, here's that cycle repeating itself, the uh, Pluto cycle or the death rebirth cycle or whatever, but there they are present in the moment, you see, with matter as it is, operating on matter to dissolve, recombine, and form because they're working for the fullness of what matter could be in one sense or beyond matter, the great uh, potent medicine. 
So anyway, this made no, me think. No, Michelle, of, it's it it's a terrific. It's a massively important point because we, you know, we I think we we mentioned alchemy much more last salon, I think, and I think the one prior maybe, but this is the reason that any of us know about alchemy now is basically yeah. this chapter. I mean, in a way, Jung's right. engagement with Philemon right. helped him retrieve, start going back to these mysterious science texts that, you know, that existed in the 14, 1500s. And what were these things? And Jung at one point had the largest alchemical library um, yes. anywhere in the yes, world, yes. right? He did, right. right. So thank you for bringing that up because I think it wouldn't be complete without really a, a clear uh, honing in on, on alchemy as, as the work of individuation as he understood it. Thank you. Yeah, and Bacchus in the kitchen. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, that's right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, hi, Jenna. Hi, Satya. Hi, Carol. Hi, everybody. Of course, I have like a million questions and comments, but I'm just going to try and distill it to uh, the relationship between, uh, it, it said on that Alice Howell slide that you showed, yes. that the age, was it the age of Pisces was faith and something? Faith and reason. Faith and reason. Okay, mm-hmm. we we hear, we hear in the conversation here between Philemon and Jung um, about faith and or magic and reason. He uses the word magic and reason, and so mm-hmm. I think of faith as magic, um, and I think of also Nikola Tesla um, and his quote. I pulled it up, and he says, "The day science begins to study non-physical phenomena, it will make more progress in one decade than in all the previous centuries of its existence." And I think about that in relation to, um, you know, having to suspend reason when you can't see what it is that's causing, you know, change, right? Um, And so I I don't really have a question. I just am sort of pinging these kind of connections. Um, So if you want to riff on it. No, that's (laughs) terrific. Thank you for the Tesla quote. All right. Jenna, are you familiar with Jung's work with the quantum physicists, with Wolfgang Pauli and others? Satya, I just met Jung on his birthday this year. Okay. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I am like, you guys and Kayleen Asbo are like my Jung teachers. So I'm not, but I have thought about the fact that, you know, I I was thinking about, um, and I'm not a scientist either, I'm, I'm more of an artist, but I was thinking about how. Um, the scientific method itself is skewed in the sense of the observation part. Now we know that observation itself has an impact with the the waves and particles. So there is a huge trove of information when you feel like diving in there. And, And I'll just give you a couple places to start. Jung had a very deep intellectual relationship with the quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli, who you know, is lesser known than, than Einstein and others, I mean, in terms of this sort of reemergence of the new physics, but is maybe one of the greatest minds in history. He was in Jungian analysis. Jung, um, there's a new publication from the Philemon Foundation around their dialogue between Jung and Wolfgang Pauli on his dreams. So Adam and Archetype, the Pauli-Jung letters is one place to go. Um, They co-published a book, Jung's essay on synchronicity uh, and Pauli's essay called The Influence of Archetypal Ideas on the Scientific Theories of Kepler. The two of them um, refused to have either of these essays published separately. 
um, for a time is my understanding because they felt that it was so critical for an understanding of psyche and matter uh, mm. as being one and the same things, but that physics, the new physics was coming at it from the perspective of matter and Jung and archetypal studies were coming at it from the perspective of psyche. So they wanted the world to understand really what you're speaking to, that it's the same thing. My favorite dive into this is a, a not well-known book called The Innermost Kernel by Suzanne Geyser. Suzanne Geyser is now a, an editor for the Philemon Foundation but this book, The Innermost Kernel, Depth, Psychology, and Quantum Physics, Wolfgang Pauli's Dialogue with C.G. Jung. As you can imagine, all of these are dense texts, but when you're ready, it's just an extraordinary dive um, into this material and, and worth the, you know, obviously you can tell I, I geeked out over this stuff and we all have. So when you're ready, it's some, from, some beautiful stuff. Okay, I just took some notes. And then one little um, lighthearted fun thing I just thought of was, um, Philemon and Bacchus are kind of like the king and queen of cottage core. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Jenna, as always. Cindy, hi. Very quickly, I just want to underline Bacchus um, just in terms of it feels almost like she's a foreshadowing uh -huh. of what comes after the Red Book with the alchemy kitchen work. Mm -hmm. So I just I love to that. I really love this emphasis. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I love that. Um, you know, for me, this she's looking out the window at Philemon, but to really pull it back to her narrative, she's in the kitchen. She's the alchemist. I love that image. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Bye bye. For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.